This is Josh Smith, pastor of Prince Avenue Baptist Church in Bogart, Georgia. Our mission at Prince is simple, leading people to trust and follow Jesus. And it's our hope that this sermon would help accomplish that mission. For more information about our church, visit us at pabc.org. Well, take your Bibles once again and turn with me to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6. If you're visiting with us this morning, and I know I, I saw a good number of families whose kids went to Camp 78 and have come this morning, so thank you. We're really glad that you're here this morning. It is our normal habit at Prince to walk through books of the Bible, and we find ourselves this morning at the end of Hebrews 6. Our text this morning will be verses 13 through 20. A passage of scripture that I have been excited about preaching and am very excited about delivering to you this morning, primarily because I think we need it. I need it. I trust all of us need it as well. When I was younger, a uh, preacher came and visited our church. He was a guest evangelist and preached for a week at our church. He made one statement that I still remember, which says a lot because I hate to admit this as a preacher. You don't remember a lot of phrases that preachers say. But I remember this one because it bothered me. I thought certainly this could not be true. He said this. He said, you are either in a storm, coming out of a storm, or about to go into a storm. Oh, boy, that's a terrible way to think about life. Everything is certainly adulthood isn't that bad, like that everything's just a, a storm. And then I think what I hated the most is that idea that if you're not in a storm, watch out. Like just trying to steal your good moment, right? Like um, everything's good right now. Well, just wait because it's about to stink. It just kind of felt like that. It seemed like kind of a, a cynical way uh, to live. As much as I hate to admit it, I, I, think, I think he was right. There just aren't a lot of seasons of life in which everything is perfectly smooth. There's just a lot of, a lot of storms, the truth is, if you were to talk to someone and they were to tell you that everything in their life was smooth, the truth is, you wouldn't believe them because you know better than that. You say, hey man, how, how you doing? Man, I'm, I'm fantastic, honestly. I have nothing to complain about. Really, your marriage going great? You know what? I, it's just, just passion. That's all I can say, just passion. Every day at my house was like the end of a Hallmark movie without the snow. Man, my, my marriage is just hot. I mean, this is just as good as it ever gets. Every day, man, it's just unbelievable how good it is. Really? How about your kids? I don't even tell them what to do anymore. They wake up, they brush their teeth, they eat breakfast, they pack their lunch, they go to school, they come home, they do their homework, they then sit with us for a while and tell us how much they love us, and then they go to bed. It's unbelievable. Really? How's work? Promotion. I wasn't even showing up. I don't even like my job. Big promotion, lots of money, got a boat. Wow. Like you wouldn't believe that because no one's life is, is really like that. I think this whole idea of our life having storms is especially true when you come to realize that not every storm is a category five hurricane. Now we do have some of those. I talked to a family last night on the phone that it's just about to get a uh, category five hurricane. Some of you are in the middle of some of those. Andrea and I have been through those. Some of you have been through some really, really intense storms. But the reality is some storms are just like a windstorm. 
Some are just like a rainstorm or a hailstorm, or maybe some of those storms are like the ones I have in my life a lot. They're a thunderstorm, which means they're far off. They threaten something terrible, but nothing ever happens, and so you worry for nothing. I get a lot of those storms. The truth is, whether big or small, all of us have storms. And contrary to what some preacher might have told you at some point, the gospel does not immunize us from storms. The good news of Jesus Christ is not no more storms. The reality is, is if we really take seriously the words of Jesus, it might be that coming to Jesus means more storms. I mean, you have all the normal storms of living in a broken world, difficulties in relationships and diagnosis and sickness and just difficulty. This is just because we live in a broken world and you add on to that the the fact that if you follow Jesus, you will be reviled for his name's sake. And uh, you might lose a lot in following Jesus. And so you actually seem to add some storms. So listen, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not no more storms. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that when you are united by faith with Jesus Christ, your life is now in the loving hands of the God who controls every storm. That's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that you are confident now that God is for you, that nothing can separate you from his love, that he is sovereign over the storm and not only sovereign, but working out every single storm in such a way that it ends up being for your good and his glory. That's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the difficulties about storms and particularly the big ones or maybe the smaller ones that just last a really long time is that they affect our souls. Like we grow weary and discouraged and even tired. This is why Psalm 42 says, why so downcast, oh my soul? You know that feeling where your soul just feels downcast? Not just down, but like it's been thrown down. It could be that even this morning, everyone around you thinks that things are okay, but your soul is not okay. And if we're not careful, those storms and the difficulty of those storms will maybe even make us resentful and deeply discouraged. It is even possible in the life of a believer that a storm would make you come to a moment of almost absolute despair. You start to wonder if God loves you and if God cares and if God is near and involved and if he even knows what's going on. And because every one of us is going to have those moments, we will. Big ones or small ones, because every one of us is going to have those type of storms. There is something all of us need. And it's found in just a few words in Hebrews 6 verse 11. What we need is, listen, the full assurance of hope. Look at chapter 6 verse 11. And we desire each one of you, every one of you this morning, this is for you. To show the same earnestness, to, to walk with the Lord, to be responsive to his word, and to have the full assurance of hope until the end. God's desire for you is to give you that which you need the most, which is until the very end, you have the full assurance of hope. Assurance. It's just the confidence that God is in these things, the confidence that God is sovereign, the confidence that God is keeping his promises, the confidence that God is good and that he loves you and that he's working for you and that he's near you and he doesn't leave you or forsake you. Just that assurance, that confidence, that settled assurance. 
but it says the assurance of, of hope. Hope is distinct from faith. Hope is the joyful expectation of something good. See, it's one thing to have faith, to be assured that God will do what he says. It's another thing to have hope, the joyful expectation that something good is going to happen. Hope is the confidence that the best is yet to come. Hope is the belief that in every storm, in this life or in the next, God will work things out for your good. That's hope. Hope is what we sing when we sing amazing grace. The Lord has promised good to me. The Lord has promised good. So what this says is God wants you to have a full, a complete, an overflowing, confident assurance of joyful expectation. Imagine having that in life. Imagine being full of confidence and assurance of good things. Absolute, unshakable, joyful belief in God's goodness. God wants you to have that. And Hebrews 6, 13 and 20 tells you how to get it. So he gives us this vision for it in the text we talked about last week so that you might have the full assurance of hope and then he shows us how we receive it. So let me read that for us. Hebrews 6, 13 through 20. If you're there, say amen. It says this. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly the heir of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that... By two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Verse 19. We have this as a sure and steady anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now I say this to you all the time, that when you're reading scripture, don't only get the words of the scripture, get the feel, the tone, the, the emotion of the scripture. And if you wanted to understand that, it would be summarized in some, ver in some words in verse 18, strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope. So listen, I just, just want you to know, the Lord's goal in this message this morning is that you leave strongly encouraged. Some of you need to be strongly encouraged in your current storm. Some of you need some little tools in the tool bag for the storm that's coming so that you can remain strongly encouraged in that moment. Some of you are coming out of it and you're feeling discouraged. And what God wants to do is put courage back in you, which is exactly what encouragement is. So no matter where you are in relation to a storm, you need strong encouragement. And the way in which God wants to strongly encourage you is to show you how to have the full assurance of hope. 
The first way in which we receive the full assurance of hope and grow in this is through his promises. Write that down. His promises. How do we get the full assurance of hope? Well, it begins with his promises. He assures us with his promises. That's verses 13 through 15. Twice there, it talks about the promises of God. It says, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. The emphasis of those verses is the promises of God. Now, it should be no surprise to us if you've read the New Testament that Abraham is given here to us as an example of of faith. All throughout Scripture, Abraham is our example of faith. As a matter of fact, when Paul is trying to make his case in the book of Romans for justification by faith apart from the works of the law, meaning you're not saved by the good things you do, you're saved by the good things Jesus did for you. You don't get saved by doing good things. You get saved by trusting Jesus' work on the cross. You have to look at what Christ has done. Paul's making this case. And he spends an entire chapter on Abraham because Abraham was declared righteous before the law came, which means Abraham wasn't saved by the law. He was saved by faith. And it says that because Abraham believed in the promises of God, he was declared righteous. As a matter of fact, talking about this full assurance of hope. I love that in Romans 4, it says this, Abraham was fully convinced on the promises of God. He absolutely believed that what God said God was going to do. And then it quotes for us in our text, a passage from Genesis 22, where it says, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. But before we get To that, we need to give some context to Abraham's life. Genesis chapter 12, God came to Abraham and said, Abraham, I'm going to make a promise to you. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you descendants and I'm going to give you a blessing. So I'm going to pour out my blessing upon you. And one of the ways I'm going to bless you is I'm going to give you descendants that outnumber the stars of the sky. And I'm going to give you a land. But in order for you to receive those things, you've got to pack up and leave. You've got to move. Now, there was a couple of challenges to this. First of all, God did not tell him where he was going. So God didn't say, I'm going to take you here. He just said, trust me, there's a better land. And so he had to kind of blindly start walking and trust, not knowing where he was going. Another challenge was that he was 75 years old. His wife was also 75 years old and she was barren. So they had hoped for children for a long time. They had not had any children. And yet here God comes at 75 years age and says, you're going to have children. Well, that's a challenge. And here they are in this season of life. They're, you know, they're thinking about going down and getting a little condo at Boca Vista, you know, just like you're sitting back a little bit and And going and just enjoying this latter stage of life. And then all of a sudden God shows up and changes everything. Now, as I imagine this as as a married man, the difficulty for me would not be believing the Lord. It would be going home and telling this to my wife. I think my wife would go anywhere. She would do whatever. But can you imagine Abraham, 75 years old, going home and his wife saying, Hey, honey, did you have a good day? Yeah, it was great. Anything special? Well, I talked to the Lord today. Oh, honey, I'm so glad. I've been, I've been hoping that you would pray more. 
Well, it's a little bit different than that. God actually appeared and, and I had a vision and God spoke to me directly. Really? What did he say? Well, I mean, a couple of things. Anything specific? Well, he said, we're going to move. Oh, great. I, I hope it's somewhere sunny. Well, I don't know exactly. Well, what do you mean? Well, he didn't tell us where. He just wants to pack up and start walking. Okay. All right. Anything else? Uh, another little thing. Not a big deal. Really? Well, what was it? Well, he just said we're going to have a baby. Excuse, excuse me? I, I couldn't quite understand. Well, he said we're going to have a baby. Can you imagine going home telling your 75-year-old wife you're going to have a baby? That's, that's a difficult conversation. I had my last one at 42. I can't imagine. Like, this stresses me out. Like, I love Jesus. I'll follow. I just, this is, this is a lot. And so Hebrews chapter 11 says this, Abraham went out not knowing where he was going. And that it also tells us is that he went out and wandered through the desert and lived in tents over 20 years. Listen, after believing the promise, after convincing his wife to go with him, saying, we're going to get a better land. We're going to get descendants. God's going to bless us. They spend the next 20 something years wandering through the deserts, living in tents with no baby. God, along the way, reaffirms the promise. In Genesis 15, he comes back and reaffirms the covenant. In Genesis 17, he comes and reaffirms it as well and gives them a sign of the covenant. God continues to remind him, but the reality is, is the only thing he had when he left is a promise. That's it. And the only thing he had to give his wife was a promise. Well, I know this doesn't seem like it's going well, but this is what God said he was going to do. And then in Genesis 21, about 25 years later, finally the child comes. They have Isaac. And God fulfills one of those promises. They still don't get to the land. But they finally have a child. And so it does appear that God has remembered them after all of those years. And then in Genesis 22, the unthinkable happens. The chapter begins by saying, and God was going to test Abraham. And he tested Abraham by saying, Abraham, the son that you waited for the son that you believed for, I want you to sacrifice that son. It says, so Abraham took the son that he loved, his only son, and he laid him on an altar and he began to tie him up. And right as Abraham was going to follow through, he heard something, a voice from an angel saying, stop, don't sacrifice your son. And God had provided a ram that was caught in the thicket and then he untied his son and he sacrificed the ram instead. But you think, how in the world would Abraham do this? Well, Hebrews 11 also tells us that Abraham believed that maybe God was going to raise Isaac from the dead. The point is this, that even at that moment of being called to sacrifice his son, Abraham still believed that somehow God was going to work it out. That somehow, even if he killed his son, God was going to work it out. And Abraham is this example to us of what it's like to walk through life with nothing but a promise. And that, that little episode in Genesis 22 is really important for us this morning. I, I, I know it, it seems distant, but we know it's important because that's how the passage starts. It's important because it reminds us of the nature of, of salvation. You know, that was pointing us forward to the fact that one day there was going to be another substitutionary atonement that one day there would be a substitute for us in the same way God provided a substitute for Isaac. But the difference is this, 
is that when that substitute came, sent by God the Father, God would not spare his only son that he loved. He would kill his only son that he loved in order that we might be saved. Substitutionary atonement, you are saved through a substitute, Jesus Christ dying on your behalf, amen? And so you get his righteousness while he gets the wrath that you deserve. This points us to the nature of salvation, but it also reminds us of the nature of promises. Listen to this, God's promises always come with an issue of testing and an issue of timing, always. God gives us a promise and he tests our belief of that promise through these storms. And there's always a timing issue with these promises. Sometimes God does not keep them immediately. He will keep them. But sometimes it takes a while. And so it is with Abraham, the testing of the promise and the timing of the promise, waiting for 20 and, and 25 years. And he believed and continued to believe. But the only thing he had in all of those years was a word from God. Now let me tell you something this morning. In the midst of all of your storms and all of your waiting and all of your difficulties, you still have the same thing Abraham had. You have a promise. You have the word of God. You have this book from first page to last page filled with promises from God that are for you. There is a promise for every circumstance, every situation, every storm in your life, there is a promise. And so in the midst of the storm, instead of letting your heart grow discouraged and running away from this, you run to this. And you run to Romans 8, where you're reminded that nothing can separate you from the love of God when it feels as if God has forgotten you. That nothing can separate you. That God is working these things for your good and for his glory. You run to Psalm 23 and reminded that there is a good shepherd that is watching over you and preparing something better for you. You run to John 10, which Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Listen, and I know my sheep by name. I love them and no one snatches them out of my hand. You run to the promises of God. You say, well, how do you cultivate full assurance of faith? You begin right here with every promise of God. He assures us with his promise. But there's another one. He also assures us with his oath. Write that down. He assures us with his oath. That's the point of verses 16 through 18. See, he introduces something to us in verse 13 from Genesis 22. The Lord swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. So after all of the promises, the one in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, all of these promises, God did something more. And it's interesting because God had just fulfilled the promise, but then after fulfilling the promise, he then gives Abraham an oath. Now, humans make oaths because we lie, okay? We're just not that trustworthy. So we say, I promise I'll give you that 20 bucks back that I owe you. And you don't believe them because they've said that before. So what would you do? Well, the next level would be is that you would, you would make an oath. You would swear by something greater than yourself, your mother's grave or something. I don't know what. You would, you would swear by something. I mean, verse 16 says this is what happens. People swear by something greater than themselves in all their disputes. An oath is final for confirmation. So a promise is one thing, but an oath is a greater thing. 
This is why in a court of law, you put one hand on the Bible and one hand up in the air to God and say, I swear to tell the truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God. You just took an oath, right? Because it's not enough to get up there and say, I promise to tell the truth. We don't believe you. Put your hand in one Bible and the hand of God because we think you're gonna lie. And somehow this oath is to be a greater confirmation that you will tell the truth, not just because you promised, but because you made an oath. But what's strange about God making an oath is what it says in verse 18. It is impossible for God to lie. So even just the fact that God makes an oath makes us think, well, is his promise not enough? He already gave promises. Why would he come back after the promise and make an oath? Well, the answer is this. God makes an oath not because his word is questionable, but because our faith is weak. He doesn't make an oath because he thinks we're going to question if he's true. It's because our faith is weak and we need something more. And so he gives us something more. This is how much God wants you to have full assurance of faith. He makes a promise and then makes an oath. The problem with God making an oath is that he can't swear by anybody greater. And so he swears by himself. He swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. You see, the difference in a promise and an oath is this. A promise is focusing on the content. It's focusing on words. I promise I will do this. But an oath focuses not on content, but on character. I promise I will do this and I swear by something greater. So the Lord says, I promise I'll do this. You have my word. I swear on myself that I will do this. Therefore, you have my character. So the hope that we have is based upon the word of God and the character of God himself. His very name and his very character is on the line here in his keeping his promises. Let me tell you something. This oath he made is for you. So how do you know that? Well, I know it because of verse 17. Look at what it says. When God desired to show more convincingly, more than a promise, to the heirs of the promise, listen to me, church, that's us. We are a part of the children of Abraham that have been brought in through Jesus Christ. We are the heirs of the promises. We are a part of that heir of children that would outnumber the stars of the sky. We're heirs of the promise. And so if you're an heir of the promise, if you have trusted Jesus Christ, this oath is for you. So he might say to the heirs of the promise, listen, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with and oath. In order for you to feel fully assured, he gave you a promise and he gave you an oath. And look at verse 18 and how these two work together. So that by two unchangeable things, what are the unchangeable things? A promise and an oath. Unchangeable because God can't lie. So here's what you have at your disposal. You have a promise and an oath, a bunch of promises, and God saying, I swear by myself, on myself and my character, that these promises will come true. On those two unchangeable things on which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge, those who have run to Jesus Christ for salvation, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope. 
That's what God's doing. He's saying, I'm giving you promises, a book full of them. And I'm swearing by my own name and giving you the oath that these two unchangeable things together will, in the midst of the storm, give you strong encouragement to keep believing with joyful expectation that God will turn this to good. As if the promise wasn't enough, he then comes back with an oath. And that's exactly how this works. Your promise, your faith, the promise that God loves you and will care for you, Listen to me, it will be tested and there will be timing and you will wonder in these difficult seasons of your marriage, of your singleness, of your studies, in your college years. I had a lady come to me at the end of the service and she goes, you know who I wish could hear this? My little grandchildren, they need to be reminded that God is good in the midst of the storm. So even for the children, they know that life has storms and we can get shaken by them But there are two unchangeable things that we have, his promise and his oath. And listen to me. Your life at times will feel like the disciples in Mark 4 when they're on the boat and the waves are crashing over the boat and it feels as if the boat is going to go under. And Jesus is asleep in the bottom of the boat. And they wake him up, confident they're going to die. And the first thing he says is this. The first thing the disciples say is this. You don't even care about us. Now listen, you can't be hard on the disciples because you've said that. You've wondered that. You've wondered when the waves are crashing over the boat if God cares. And he says, storm be still. Why are you afraid? You've got the oath and you've got the promises, two unchangeable things. Those two working together begin to give us the full assurance of hope, a joyful expectation of good in the midst of every storm. But I can tell you one more thing. The reason is, is because when I think about this, as great and glorious as this is, I feel as if something's missing. And the reason is, is because what we've said so far depend upon me always holding on to the promises and the oath or I get shipwrecked. And now listen, can we just be honest about something? Have you noticed that it doesn't often take a huge storm to get us to question God? Have you ever noticed how easy it is in a moment for us to wonder if God is there? Like I found in my life, some of the bigger things are easier. It's the little things in which we start to question God. And and this is life. Like life is going to have all of these. And my concern is, is that if my ability to stay faithful until the end is my ability to keep holding on in the storm, I'm worried that I can't hold on. And so he gives us one more thing. He gives us his promise, his oath, and he gives us, write this down, his forerunner. His forerunner. This is the last thing. You have to see this. This this will not be complete without this. That's verses 19 and 20. He chooses a perfect metaphor. We have this as a sure, what is this? We have this, the promises and the oath. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Meaning... There is a rope tied to your soul and it's got an anchor on it. And where is it anchored? Into the inner place behind the curtain in the very presence of God. Listen, there is a rope tied to the very presence of God on one side and your soul on the other. Let me tell you how it works. If you're with me, say amen. In ancient times, when a boat pulled up to a harbor 
what they would find is a large embedded rock in every harbor so that the boat could tie itself to the rock because a dock could be moved in the midst of a storm, but the rock couldn't. There was always a rock. And so a ship would go up and looking to moor itself uh, to the shore would find that rock and tie to it. Here's the difficulty. There were many times in which the wind was too strong and the waves were too strong. So the ship couldn't get close enough to the shore in order to tie itself on. So then they would have a forerunner. And here's what a forerunner would do. A forerunner would get out of the boat and get into a smaller boat and maybe a couple of people and they would row in the midst of all of the wind and all of the storm and they would take the rope with them. And they would take that rope all the way to the shore and the forerunner would tie that rope around that rock when the ship could not get close enough. And then everyone in the ship would pull in so that the ship got close because the forerunner had ensured its safety. With that in mind, look at verses 19 and 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, listen, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I'm gonna tell you something and you better get excited and say amen. Listen to what is happening here. Jesus Christ did what you could not do. You could not bring yourself safely home by your own will. It's not that strong. So Jesus died, he was buried, he rose, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and when he ascended, he took with him a rope tied to your soul. He then sat at the right hand of the Father and tied the other end of that rope to the very presence of God, and from that moment on until the very end, the Father himself is pulling you in slowly but surely, ensuring you make it home. And it is not because of the strength of your own will. The hope of the gospel of Jesus to Christ is when you feel as if you're about to shipwreck, God is pulling you in. This is exactly why the hymn writer says his oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And this passage, like every other passage in Hebrews, is directly connected to the most important passage in Hebrews, and that is Hebrews 12 too. Because in a sense, the response to every message in Hebrews is the same, particularly this one. It simply says this, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, because here's what happened. Like Peter, who was called by Jesus to step out of the boat and to walk on water, he looks at Jesus, he walks on the water, but he starts to hear the wind and feel the wind, and he starts to look at the waves, and the moment he takes his eyes off of Jesus, he sinks, exactly how it is with us every moment of the day. The moment you take your eyes off of Jesus, the storm begins to prevail. And so Jesus is saying in the midst of every storm and every difficulty, have the full assurance of hope. And the way you get that is constantly looking to me and being reminded that he tied your soul and anchored it to the very throne of God and he will bring you safely home. Amen. Amen. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this sermon. 
May you trust and follow Jesus more and lead others to do the same. For more information, visit us at pabc.org.